Okay, so like I mentioned, this week we're transitioning to uh, chapter 18 of the Confession. And this chapter deals with assurance of grace and salvation. So it's dealing with assurance. Uh, the assurance of the one who truly believes that he may know that he knows that he knows that he has salvation. And that those promises of God are not just there, but that they're his, that he possesses them. Okay. So um, I wanted to mention and just remind us that as, as we look at the confession, it's important to remember that the men who uh, put their hands and thoughts to the confession, so we hold to the 1689 as Reformed Baptists, we trace our um, theological roots back to the Reformation and uh, specifically those um, Reformed Baptists during that time. And so we hold to the 1689 London uh, Confession of Faith, Baptist Confession of Faith. So the Baptist Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Savoy Declaration are sort of the, uh, the three uh, main confessions that came out of the, the Reformation. And so they're all pretty similar, although there are chapters where they differ. And the men who put their minds and thoughts to the confession, they weren't just um, theological gurus who were just sort of sitting in a tower somewhere um, writing up um, doctrines to say, yeah, we are, we're smart. Let's show you how, how smart we are. Um, if, if you read the beginning of the confession, the older confession, the 1644 confession, the first one, and the second confession, the second London Baptist confession, you'll see at the beginning of those confessions a sort of short write-up as to why the confessions were put together. They're basically saying two things. On one end, they're saying <clears throat> we are a legitimate uh, denomination. We have uh, unity with our Pado-Baptist brothers in many areas. And so they wanted to show that there is unity there between Baptists, uh, um, uh, credo-Baptists, believer, those who believe in believer's baptism, and paedo-Baptists, those who believe in infant baptism. They wanted to say there is unity there. And a second reason why they put out these confessions was to say that we're not Anabaptists. And so Anabaptists at that time, and even before that time, um, just were those who uh, held to believers' baptism, but were radical and, in many areas, unhelpful. And so um, our Baptist <clears throat> forefathers were saying, we have unity in some areas with our paid Baptist brothers, and we're not Anabaptists. But I said all that to say that they're not just men in ivory towers writing out doctrine. Many of these men were pastors. Uh, and so they had in mind, of course, doctrine and sound theology. And as any good pastor, they wanted to defend the truth and communicate sound doctrine, while at the same time feed the sheep. And so in this chapter on assurance of grace and salvation, you can sort of get a sense of their pastoral hearts. They want their readers to be assured of their salvation and to find assurance which is basically what Hebrew says as well, Hebrew 6, which we'll talk about. And so as I go through this as well, I'm using um, some of the commentaries from Sam Waldron and Gary Marble. Both have commentaries on the 1689. Those have been really helpful as we sort of look at this subject. 
Okay, so let's go ahead and begin. Let me have someone read, if you have a handout or a confession, paragraph one for us. Thank you, Will. So although this chapter is talking about the genuine believer and the assurance of salvation that they can have, this paragraph starts by talking about the opposite of the genuine believer. And who is that? It's the temporary believer or the unregenerate person. It starts by basically saying, don't be deceived. Only those who truly believe can have assurance of salvation, a rock solid, grounded assurance. The person who believes for a little while then falls away, deceives himself into thinking that he has assurance. But it's not just the temporary believer that this paragraph addresses, it also says other unregenerate people. So these other unregenerate people are people who don't profess to know God or believe in him. They don't care about him or his word, yet they think that they still have God's blessing. They think that they still have God's favor, that God still smiles down upon them, although they have no regard for God. They, that person, deceives themselves, and they have a false assurance. They have a false hope. And the confession of this paragraph basically starts there. Don't be deceived. Only those who truly believe can have assurance, and they ought to have assurance. And some of you have probably talked to people who have deceived themselves in this way. Um, I know I was one of these people who deceived themselves in this way. And when you talk to some people, or maybe even if you talked to me back you know, before I was saved, I would have said something like, all of us are children of God, and there are many ways to have a true relationship with God. As long as you believe what you believe without judging anybody else's belief, I believe that a loving God still accepts you. That's just something we hear commonly. This is a presumption, and it is presumption, that says, I know better than God how to have his favor and how to have a right relationship with him. I know better than God about how to win his favor and how to get to heaven. But underneath that type of thinking is usually uh, this assumption. And this assumption is that we're probably, we say to ourselves, I'm probably not as bad as I think I am. I'm probably just hard on myself, and I'm a little better than I, I, I think I am. I, I remember being in um, high school in my senior year. Um, I was sitting in class with a friend and I was uh, boasting to this friend about my plans for the weekend. And out of nowhere, this was just so random, this friend, she, she looks at me and she says, um, when are you gonna stop? And she's like, she said, you say that you're a Christian, when do you, when do you plan to stop? 
And this was in the context of me of telling her, sort of, I plan to do this and this this weekend. And my thought, I didn't say it with my lips, but my thought was, girl, I go to church every Sunday. <laughs> you can't tell me that I'm not a Christian. I've been going to church my whole life. I, the, the Lord knows I've been going to church. He knows that I read my Bible. He knows that my mom's a believer and she trained me up to know the right answers. Of course, I'm good. And I think that is just common for uh, those who deceive themselves. It's just a common way of thinking. We assume that um, we are better than we think we are because we judge with false scales. This is the one who has deceived themselves and has a false hope and therefore has a false assurance. Another uh, thing that we sort of, that comes to mind when we think about uh, whether or not we have God's favor um, and we consider or think that we're better than we think we are, we uh, say to ourselves that, well, everybody else is doing really bad. Or we pick out the worst people in society and we say, well, I'm better than they are. They're really bad. Um, so I'm, compared to them, I'm okay. This person does this, this, and this. Compared to them, I'm okay. And so we judge with these false scales. We judge with our scales of right and wrong rather than God's scales of right and wrong. This person that does this has no true hope because they're using their scales and not God's scales. And therefore, they, they don't have any true assurance. They have no true hope because they are uh, false believers and therefore they have no true assurance. <clears throat> Again, we use our scale and not God's, and so we base our assurance on false, false hopes that we're good with God when we're really not. So if you think about, picture a, a raft with a hole in it in the middle of the Pacific Ocean during a hurricane. What do you think will happen to this raft when the hurricane, when the storm comes? It'll be what? Thoughts. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> torn up, <laughs> torn to shreds. This is the hope of the person that trusts in anything else apart from Christ for their justification. They have no true hope, therefore they ought to have no true assurance. And the confession is starting this paragraph in this way, don't be deceived, only true believers can have assurance. <clears throat> and Job 8 tells us what happens to that false confidence of those false believers, those temporary believers or unregenerate people. Job 8, three, uh, 13 to 14 says, so are the paths of all who forget God and the hope of the godless will, what? Perish, whose confidence is fragile and who trusts, whose trust is a spider's web. Does that term spider's web sound familiar for the, tr the trust? of the, uh, the unbeliever, the unregenerate person. Where's that from? Or who pulled from this to use it? Edwards, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, dangling a spider on a web, dangling over God's uh, righteous wrath. <clears throat> this is the hope of the person uh, who is a false believer. Um, whatever they hope in, uh, however, they, however strong they think that foundation is, if it's not Christ, there's no, it's no true hope at all. The only hope of anyone that, that anyone has is Christ alone. But the one who rejects him in this life won't have him in the next life either. It's as simple as that. 
The one who rejects him in this life won't have him in the next life either. So as you keep reading through this paragraph, it makes this transition about halfway through by saying these words. Yet those who truly believe. So it goes from the temporary believer or the unregenerate person to those who truly believe. So it's saying on the other hand, those who truly believe. This true belief has taken a hold of feelings, no, uh, self-help, uh, no, the Pope, no, Mary, the mother of Jesus, no. Genuine belief grabs a hold to who? It holds on to who? Christ. True belief takes a hold of the only mediator between him and God, and that's Christ Jesus. And in him is the ground of assurance and God's favor for the regenerate person. But this belief is not just a profession without fruit. This true belief bears fruit, as this paragraph goes on to say. True believers demonstrate the fruit of true faith. Part of a sincere love for Christ is shown by endeavoring or striving to walk in good conscience before him. So uh, John 14, 15. I'm going to have someone read that, that verse for us. John 14, 15. And then you can read the other one, too. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. <clears throat> okay. So the Bible is clearly not saying here that we keep God's commandments to earn salvation. <clears throat> the Bible is saying that we keep his commandments because he has poured out his love to us. We don't keep God's commandments to earn his love. We keep God's commandments because he has poured out his love to us. And so we strive to, as the confession says, walk in all good conscience before him. We want to walk in all good conscience before him. First Timothy 1.5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love, pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. <clears throat> the confession is sort of drawing this out in this section of the paragraph. <clears throat> and so the writers of the confession were, were wanting to make this distinction. They were wanting to confirm that only those who demonstrate a true faith may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. Only those who have true faith can be assured that they are in a state of grace. And that true faith has for itself evidences, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So First John gives us a right foundation for assurance of salvation. 1 John 3, and I'm just going to read through these, and you can follow along if you like. Um, 1 John 3, 18 to 19. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 1 John 3, 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. 1 John 3, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us 
by the spirit whom he has given us. Chapter three, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then John tells us why he wrote the letter. First John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. So the assurance of the true believer is not based on a vain hope or fleshly presumption, but on Christ. And this is seen by the fruit and evidence that God has truly brought this person from death to life in Christ. And those people, those people rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. And so this paragraph is saying, not the false believer, not the unregenerate person, but only the true believer can and ought to have assurance. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Any thoughts on that before I go to paragraph two? Yes. I was uh, reading ESV. in those past few from First John ESV. evidences there will be fruit on that tree okay let's jump down to paragraph two let me have someone read that for us Thank you, Anthony. So this paragraph um, is basically taking assurance and it's holding it up and saying the assurance of genuine faith is infallible. It's rock solid. Not because we believe it is, but because of what the assurance is based in. What the assurance is based in is what gives it its uh, infallibility. The foundation of the assurance, the foundation of the assurance uh, being infallible, I'm sorry, the foundation of the assurance is infallible, and so the assurance is uh, infallible. And knowing the context of this chapter of the confession is actually really helpful. When the writers of the confession wrote this chapter, they were also trying to clarify some controversial issues. Sam Waldron, in his commentary on the 1689, said, God overrules controversy for the purpose of clarifying the truth for the church. And that's true. If you look at church history, God has used controversy like a stone on the blade of a sword to sharpen it and sharpen it and sharpen it and sharpen it. And what's being sharpened? The doctrine of the church. 
<clears throat> God often uses controversy to do that. And the writers of the confession were addressing two issues in this paragraph. One was the Roman Catholic view that denied assurance of salvation. Roman Catholics taught that assurance could only come by special revelation to certain saints. They also taught that assurance was dangerous for the ordinary Christian. Uh, Robert Letham, who wrote a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, he says that Rome's semi-Pelagian doctrine of salvation together with its penitential or penitence system cast a perpetual cloud of uncertainty over the believer's status. <clears throat> it's really good. The second issue addressed here were Protestants who were antinomian. And antinomian means anti-law. This idea basically said that you can have a rock solid assurance of salvation without the fruit of holy living. And the confession is addressing both of those issues in this chapter. That you can have a rock solid assurance without holy living uh, and that assurance was only meant for uh, special saints through special revelation. And so the confession, contrary to this doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, says that assurance is not only possible, but is actually beneficial. The believer ought to have assurance. And this assurance is not just us persuading ourselves. It's not just our own opinion that we have assurance. This assurance is not naked, but it's rooted in the blood and righteousness of Christ. And so it's actually clothed with evidence or fruit. And this assurance is something that the writer of Hebrews actually wants his believers to have. Let me have someone read this, these verses for us. Thank you. <clears throat> and then later on in this same chapter, uh, we see what assurance is actually grounded in. Hebrews 6 goes on to explain about how God desiring to show to the heirs of the promise his unchangeable purpose guaranteed it with an oath. So God is watering the roots of our assurance so that we have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And then Hebrews 6, 19 to 20 says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, which uh, Pastor Ron talked about a little last week, Christ as that, that anchor, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul. This assurance of faith has an object that it rests upon, and that's the perfect work of Christ. So this paragraph is saying the believer can have assurance and that he ought to have assurance. The Bible talks about him having assurance and that assurance is actually infallible. 
And it's infallible because of the foundation of the assurance. And so the writers of the confession also say that this insurance has inward evidences of those graces of the spirit about which promises are made. So there are external realities, the perfect work of Christ, but then there are internal evidences, uh, those things that the spirit is working in the one who truly believes. Those inward evidences are things like uh, love, joy, uh, peace, um, and those other virtues that the spirit works in the believer. And so what this paragraph is also saying is that there are promises attached to those inward evidences. So Second uh, Peter 1 says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge. And some of you may know this verse. How does it end? Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with <laughs> Self-control. <laughs> Just making sure y'all are still listening. Self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. <clears throat> so uh, in uh, verse 11 of Second Peter 2 says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of God until the, until the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter's not saying that these virtues, again, will earn you salvation and entrance into heaven. The point is this. If you go up to an apple tree, you expect to see what on the tree? Apples. Thank you. <laughs> if you go up to an orange tree, you expect to see what on the tree? Oranges, <laughs> right? In the same way, if you claim to be a fig tree, but you don't have figs, you're not a fig tree. In other words, if you claim to be a true believer, but you don't bear fruit, then you have strong reason to question your salvation and assurance. <clears throat> it's um, a, a common and simple principle, but it's something that often, like, like you said, um, Diana, when we talk to people at times, uh, we, we're talking to them and we're engaging with them and we're asking them just about the faith and we're sharing the gospel with them. Um, and as we're talking to people at, at times, we may hear them uh, say something or may hear them sort of talk about their life. And we say, hmm, that's interesting that you would say that. And then we maybe ask some other questions and sort of try and find out sort of where they are. Um, and as we do that, sometimes when we're talking to people, it, we, we're, we're looking for the apples. We're sort of moving leaves around. We're looking for the apples, we're looking for the apples. And sometimes there are no apples. There's just a bunch of leaves that have the appearance of uh, health and nourishment, but they're not bearing the fruit. And so, unlike you even read earlier, <clears throat> even the examination of ourselves is um, healthy at times, not, not raking ourselves to uh, find, uh, uh, to be discouraged to when we see we're not bearing fruit as we want to, but looking for those evidences of salvation. <clears throat> okay. All right, so what else affirms assurance? The spirit witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God. 
don't mind reading that. For you have received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are our children of God. Okay, thank you. And so the cry of the believer, Abba, Father, shows how deeply union with Christ was realized in the experience of the New Testament church. We see that in Galatians 4 as well. The cry, this cry is an expression of an assured awareness of sonship, even in the midst of trial and distress. And this should never make us lazy, this, this uh, cry of Abba Father, this awareness of sonship, uh, these evidences. It shouldn't make us lazy or prideful or presumptuous, sinning that grace may abound. But as this paragraph says, it should make us humble and holy. Humble, grateful for God's mercy toward us. And so thanksgiving should always be on our lips. But it should also make us holy. Again, not uh, bearing fruit so that um, our fruit earn us salvation. That's not the point. When I say that it should make us holy, what I'm saying is as we're being sanctified by the Spirit and striving for holiness by prayer, love, and knowledge of Christ, etc., we're being made more holy. And everyone who thus hopes, has their hope fixed on him, Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. So we will bear fruit and we should look at those fruit. And those fruit ought to be evidences of genuine salvation. Those fruit don't earn us way into heaven, but they are uh, the fruit, the evidences that one is truly saved. <clears throat> okay, let's jump down to paragraph three, in about 10 minutes. Let me have someone read that for us. This infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully experienced Yet with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. In this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These effects are the natural fruits of this assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. Okay. <clears throat> so this, uh, the beginning of this uh, paragraph at least, has uh, been controversial throughout uh, church history. But this paragraph starts by saying that assurance of faith is not the same as the nature of faith. So if you ask what makes faith faith, the answer is not assurance. If assurance were the essence of faith, then a believer with no assurance would also have no hope and so wouldn't have salvation. If assurance was essential to salvation, then a person would have to believe that they were saved in order to be saved. Right? So this paragraph is saying that 
assurance and faith are not uh, synonymous. <clears throat> and so the person's faith rests, if, if, the, if assurance and salvation, or if faith and assurance are synonymous, then the person's faith can rest on their confidence that they are saved, their assurance, rather than Christ. Faith rests on Christ alone for assurance. This paragraph is simply saying that there are some genuine believers whose assurance doesn't always match up to the reality of that saving faith. They have been genuinely saved, but their assurance is lacking. And so we shouldn't assume that a lack of assurance is the same as a lack of saving faith. Some true believers will wait a long time and struggle uh, before, and struggle a lot, before they have assurance. The believer who struggles to have assurance shouldn't assume that they can never have assurance either. Um, we don't want to make that mistake and sort of err on the other side. The Bible actually tells us, tells the believer to seek assurance, um, pursue it, uh, chase after it. We saw that earlier in Hebrews, and then um, Isaiah 50, verse 10, says, uh, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him, the same person, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Uh, it gives strong encouragement for the one who fears the Lord by saying those words. The believer does not need, and this is one of the things that this paragraph is addressing, extraordinary revelation to have infallible assurance. Special or extraordinary revelation is not necessary. It's unnecessary. The confession is addressing two errors, again, of the Roman Catholic Church here. One is that extraordinary revelation is required for one to have infallible assurance. And the other is that ordinary believers shouldn't expect assurance. But this paragraph goes on to say that there is provision for attaining assurance of salvation. And what are they? The Spirit of God and the means of grace. The Spirit of God and the means of grace. The Spirit and the ordinary means of grace are God's special and special way of sanctifying a believer and bringing them to full assurance. And these are common to every believer. Every believer has the Spirit of God. Uh, the, the means of grace are given for every believer, not just some. And you see that often as well in some uh, traditions and denominations where there are um, people that are somewhat uh, special or seen as special within this church or congregation and those people have sort of this special endowment of power or grace and so they're sort of set aside by the rest of the congregation that's just something that uh, you just don't see in scripture every believer is given the spirit the seal and uh, the ordinary means of grace. Yes. 
Yeah. There is no assurance derived simply by examining our sanctification. We must never confuse the heart of assurance and faith with its confirmation in a life of service. Yeah. It makes the distinction there. Yeah. How you guide assurance and faith. That's helpful. Yeah. yeah, that's helpful. Thank you for reading that. That's helpful. <clears throat> Okay, and so, um, so the believers, every believer is given the spirit and uh, the means of grace. <clears throat> and so the spirit of adoption is also given to all believers. Uh, Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, Peter implies that we can be assured of our calling and election by attending uh, to the faith and virtues un- found in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7, which I read earlier. Supplement faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. John McPherson says, not by prying into divine secrets, but through attention to the duties of the practical Christian life is the comfort of true assurance to be gained. And what are the duties of the practical Christian life? What did God give to the Christian and the church so that they bear fruit in common living? Not as much of extraordinary things, but what has God given to every believer that they bear fruit in common living? God has given the means of grace. He has given the Christian prayer, the word, corporate worship, uh, preaching, uh, baptism, communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. All of these things are given to every Christian as a means of grace, God's ordinary means of grace. Prayer reminds us of our uh, dependence in communion. The word shows us the great and precious promises. Baptism is a sign that those promises are ours. Preaching burns those promises on our hearts and minds, and the Lord's Supper preaches the gospel to our senses as we eat and drink while the Spirit serves grace to our souls. And so we can take the Lord's Supper and look around and know that every true believer who takes the Lord's Supper is also being sustained by the same Spirit I'm being sustained by, that they're Uh, struggling and grappling with sin just like me, but they have a promise and a reward in Christ. And so there's this communion even through the Lord's Supper as we take it together, which encourages the believers, the true believers, assurance. And there's sort of this cycle happening there. Um, We need assurance. We attend to the means of grace. Our assurance is encouraged. We struggle with um, sin. We need assurance. We attend to the means of grace. Our assurance is strengthened and confirmed. And so there's this blessed cycle of uh, bearing fruit by the Spirit and being further assured of our salvation. And so a passage that I think would be helpful for us to give thought to and memorize is Titus 2, 11 to 14. It says... For the grace, and this is just as we are being sanctified by the Spirit and bearing fruit and keeping with repentance and uh, striving for assurance. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age, looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. The ESV says, training us to renounce worldly passions and evil desires. We're being trained and instructed to renounce worldly passions and evil desires. And these things are strengthening our assurance. And so assurance is both the duty and the delight that we should strive to attain. And although all believers don't always in the same way attain full assurance at the same time, it is something that believers can have, that they ought to have, that the Bible tells us we could have, and that we ought to strive for. It's our duty, it's our delight, um, and the Bible calls us to that. And we encourage one another in that as well. Yeah. And I like to remind myself that hope is the way the world sees hope. Hope is an assurance all by itself. Yeah. So that blessed hope that we have. Amen. Amen. Yep. I can't think of a specific verse for um, this, though, maybe you can. 